Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and Gas Production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Upstream Oil & Gas Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energia Consulting, and joined the Oil & Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to OGGN website and take a look and check out all the other podcasts in the network and the new merchandise that's available. Maybe even pick up the Oil & Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter, Sunday Update. All links are in the show notes below. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Sally Goodson, founder and president of Goodson Energy Advisors. Hi, Sally. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. hi. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so glad you you joined us. You're a wealth of experience, as people will um, hear as I read your bio. Uh, Sally Goodson worked over 30 years in the oil and gas industry for both Chevron, the API, and she retired from API in May of 2022 and started Goodson Energy Advisors, LLC. She began her oil and gas career with Chevron Corporation after graduating in 1979 from Vanderbilt University Engineering School with a degree in civil engineering. Throughout the 80s, she worked on design, fabrication, installation of offshore oil and gas platforms and facilities for Chevron in the Gulf of Mexico and investigated deep water development design concepts. While at Chevron, she also spent a year at the Chevron corporate office in San Francisco recruiting petroleum engineers. After leaving Chevron in the early 90s, Sally obtained an MBA degree from Southern Southern Medicine (laughs) <laughs> Method. Southern Methodist University and began a career with API in Washington, D.C. At API, she worked with API monogram and ISO certification programs, managing the API Worldwide Audit Program. After several years in that assignment, she then worked the remainder of her API career with the API Standards Department. There, she managed up to five standardization committees, primarily focused on the measurement of oil and gas for custody transfer. Through this effort, she worked with all three segments of oil and gas, upstream, midstream, and downstream. So Sally, you just have a a dream career almost, it seems, working in the private sector with Chevron and then working for API on all different aspects of it. And then working in the Gulf of Mexico is very exciting. I I really uh, value that part uh, in your your portfolio here. So so great. Well, well, welcome again. I'm glad that you're here. Let's go ahead and get started. Tell us what your goals are with the Goodson Energy Advisor. 
Well, one thing, um, you know, after being in oil and gas for uh, 30 years and seeing everything I've seen, um, I'm very interested in the work and the energy transition and, um, yeah. and trying to make a difference right. with our efforts to reduce emissions in the yeah. oil and gas industry. I have a firm belief with meeting all the um, innovation and technology that I've witnessed that um, that the oil and gas industry and the people of the oil and gas industry can um, can meet this challenge of climate change. And um, so hopefully I'll, I'll be able to do some of that and really just use my experience and um, to, to further um, the oil and gas industry and help companies and individuals. Absolutely. Yeah, the whole emissions mitigation um, and prevention and uh, taking those emissions. And uh, I'm thinking about um, uh, natural gas, methane emissions. Uh, but you're right, there's all kinds of emissions. Uh, it would, would you be focusing on um, natural gas or would you be focusing on all? Or what, what are your thoughts when you say emissions? Well, when I was working at API, I worked on a committee for evaporative loss um, through the some of the storage tanks and some of the pipelines. And then we were working on some standards to reduce fugitive emissions, which are uh, mainly methane emissions um, on production facilities that come through the um, through the um, valves and some of the equipment. So um, there's a lot of effort that API is doing and other people are doing to reduce methane. I think that's key, and that's something I'm just really interested in as I was working on that at API. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very important aspect of the um, transition, as we call it. Um, it is uh, something that we're definitely going to need to address. We are addressing, we have been addressing, but really focusing on it is uh, is an important aspect of the transition. It's not just um, adding um, uh, renewables and the like. So, so great. Well, I'm glad you that you um, are thinking about that. But so that's now. So, how did you first get involved in the oil and gas sector? Let's see. You said you were. Uh, we well, said you I, were a, yeah, an I, uh, I. I, uh, I grew up with a family of uh, civil engineers, and mm. so it wasn't unusual for me to pursue a degree in civil engineering. Right. Um, but instead of going with the family and doing conventional civil engineering work, I had interviewed with Chevron on campus and was just totally impressed with Chevron and then going to the uh, field visit and going down to um, South Louisiana and visiting um, some of the offshore platforms. As a civil engineer, a structural engineer, that's just a dream come true. Yeah. So, so Sally, um, let me let me ask you about that. You you um you, you were really impressed with Chevron. You said was that because of the Chevron culture unique to Chevron? Was it the oil and gas kind of? You never really realized how. Uh, your work could be applied to oil and gas. What what impressed you? Because uh, obviously well, you got into oil and gas. Yeah, well, well there. a lot of, uh, well, the technology, like I said, seeing offshore platforms and facilities. And, and then also at the time in 1979, there was a lot going on in oil and gas. You know, the um, price of oil had gone up tremendously due to, um, some of the, Iran the Iranian revolution and the, the um, cutbacks. Yeah, um, the oil embargo. The oil embargo from yeah. Saudi Arabia. So it was just a very exciting time, both business-wise and uh, engineering-wise, to go into um, um, 
to 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 the oil and gas industry. So Chevron, that's pretty cool. So so Sally, um, what were some of your experiences? Obviously, you were very successful on that interview and that site visit with Chevron. So what did, what were some of your experiences offshore? What kinds of uh, what were the different areas that you worked on um, with Chevron? Um, you know, especially in the offshore arena. Well, what what made Chevron attractive and unique was that um, in the um, early 80s, uh, and when I started with them, they had a whole department that was devoted to design of offshore platforms uh-huh. and fabrication. So they didn't um, subcontract that right. out. So being an, a new engineer, it was very exciting uh-huh. to actually put my fingers on the design and run the analysis programs yeah. and everything. Are there some, and, some um, uh, platforms that we would be familiar with that you worked on? Well, one of the areas that was big at the time, I don't know if anyone out there would, would recognize it, was the Eugene Island area, and I worked in that area. Mm-hmm. And then also yeah. um, the main pass, which is off the mouth of the Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and those were, those are, you know, older Chevron oil fields, you know, that they discovered years before I went to work for them. But back to the culture, it was just a marvelous culture um, in the office with the, you know, we were all engineers and design engineers. So it was perfect for a young engineer. And I was the only woman. But it was fine. I um, got a lot, seemed to get along yeah. well with the guys, and um, and then the opportunity to go offshore, and uh, you know, occasionally I had to take a crew boat for six hours. You know, that was now kind of an indoctrination. Yeah. yeah, indoctrination. But I did get to fly on some of the Chevron um, aircraft, there you go. Um, which were actually um, a lot of times were ex-Vietnam. Um, pilots, so in the early 80s. So, yeah. you know, it's just a very interesting experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, just an engineer's dream. And then, you know, just uh, economics around oil and gas is just a very exciting right, time. Right. Well, you uh, did write an article on your. Um offshore experience for Oil Woman magazine and maybe talked about some of the uh, changes in uh, uh, technology, if yeah. you will, uh, over that time period. Share, share some of that with us. Well, so, so what is interesting is um, uh, in the kind of mid to late 80s, um, Chevron was looking into deeper and deeper water, as were other companies. I think... Um, Shell had a deep water platform, and they were fixed platforms. And so at the time, we were looking at three different concepts, a tension leg platform, a compliant tower, these were fixed, and then the floating production system, which is a a floating production platform that is moored moored to the ocean floor. And then they were just on the forefront of using subsea um, wells and subsea equipment you know, wellheads. So I had a chance to go out on some of those first ones. Placid was one um, that we went out and looked at. So really my, in the late 80s, 1980s, part of my job was to kind of write a report and say which of the three concepts would be more viable and economic. And it turned out now that the um, floating production system was was the one, and you've seen that is used quite frequently. Now, what as far as innovation goes, that was in the late 80s, and now we're in 2000s, and that was looking at 1,200 feet of water, and they're in over 3,000 feet of water right. with very viable concepts right. that are being used. Right. So 
that was the future at the time was the deeper water concepts. And so they've been proven and they um, work, you know, they've been working quite well. Right. So Absolutely. Yeah, no, how exciting for you to be part of that, uh, part of the design, part of the advancement, um, going into, you know, deep water, ultra deep water. Um, and then now watching the technologies. And so how long were you in that um, arena? How long were you? Well, it, it, then um, in um, the early 90s, I retired. Took Well, I didn't fully retire, but I left Chevron. Um, I took a, a voluntary retirement package and wanted to go back to Dallas, which was my home. Um, and, and I decided to get an MBA at SMU. And at that time, I wasn't sure. I thought I may go into energy lending or oh, right. um, you know, you use MBA. Yeah. yeah, so it, it just gave me a lot more opportunity um, if I wanted to transfer out of engineering. And um, it occurred to me um, during that time, after I got out of business school, that API would be a wonderful place um, for me to use my engineering experience and um, people skills. And then standards would be... Um, you know, a, a very good um, area for my background. Mm -hmm. So I did call API and they happened to have an opening and I took off and moved to Washington, D.C. Wow, and wow. got a condominium and <laughs> commuted into, commuted into D.C. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So. so for people who are not part of the oil and gas sector and API is, I mean, we always say oil and gas and API. I mean, to us, we, we know exactly what is the American Petroleum Institute. But just give a little overview uh, of API for people who are not in the oil and gas sector. Why, why do we care about them? You know, why, what contributions do they make? Just at that high level. Yeah, well, the most uh, significant thing about API, really, and the reason it was founded, it was founded after World War One, because none of the equipment was standardized. Okay, so that because of the war effort, there was a big need for oil and gas, and none of the casings, if you're familiar with what casings are, any of the equipment that's used to drill or produce oil and gas was standardized. So. API was formed, and it has member companies that are members that are um, oil and gas companies as well as manufacturers, and um, you know they they de developed the first standards to standardize the equipment for the oil and gas yeah. industry, and that was back in the 19, um, 18, yes. 1920s spin. Yeah. So they moved into tax. Um, issue, you know, working on tax issues. And now a big thing they do, of course, is oil and gas policy, um, trying to promote oil and gas policy and advocacy right. in so there um, must be the two Washington sides environment. sides to API, right? Well, yeah, but they, but the two cross, I mean, the standards are, are very important in our advocacy efforts. Um, you know, um, it, it's very helpful when we can Say well, we have a stand. You know, we have some um, uh, a pipeline um, issue or something. Well, we say well, we have a standard for that, or more importantly, we can quickly develop a standard for that using our standardization process. Yeah. And uh, by the way, those processes are done by committees, which are made up of the oil and gas 
companies as well as the manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. So, so being in Washington, they try to be very. Yeah, easy. yeah. No, I'm sorry. You know, to go ahead. You. I was just going to say, uh, being here in D.C., I got to see lots of different aspects of the API. And the first when you were talking about uh, in the early years um, of API, the contribution they made had to do with the standardization. And for people who are not familiar with oil and gas, when you construct a, an oil well, you line it with pipe, and it's. Uh, uh, lengths of pipe, you know, 30 feet, 40 feet. There are connections that are made up. They're kind of like screwed in one after another after another. And all of that equipment, um, if you don't have standards, then you have something that might not fit together, something that might not hold for the lifetime of the well. There's different reasons why you would want to make sure that you've got a well-constructed, a properly constructed well. And standards for uh, pipe, pipe thickness, uh, bolts, you know, applications of uh, different kinds of equipment. Are they the right e equipment for the right job? That kind of thing. Not just throw things together. So safety is at the utmost uh, motivation for all of that. So standard is, standards are, are really important. And then um, with respect to the advocacy that you were talking about, um, if there is a, a challenge and different companies sort of rise to meet that challenge, then it becomes sort of a best practice. And API helps share that information uh, amongst its members um, as to, you know, how to tackle something. And if a best practice just becomes a regular practice, then um, the regulators might consider adopting that and causing everyone to use that that practice. And as you were saying, you know, work on work by is done by committees, um, subject matter experts of all different types. Uh, on particular committees um, address very fundamental kinds of practices and activities and um, make uh, make known what new technologies might be available that, that obviate the way we used to do it, kind of make it better uh, and the like. And having those um, practices and um, new technologies become now standardized because they're part of API and available really creates, elevates the standard with which the industry can operate. And that's an important advocacy piece because it's based in science and technology um, uh, and can be measured and proven. So am I on the right track there uh, with all of that? Yeah, you said that probably better than I did. And, and I think you know your audience better than I do. So, um, you know, I'm probably thinking I'm speaking to more engineers. But one thing about our standardization process is that it meets the American National Standard Institute requirements. So it's a very rigorous um, yeah. process yeah. that involves um, balance of the committees. You know, we have to have an equal number of uh, users and manufacturers. We just can't have all the oil companies dictating, for example, right. what the equipment may be. And then um, also um, we go through a, a really rigorous balloting process where um, you mean voting? Standard, that balloting? Oh. Yeah, it's a, balloting would be um, we actually uh, ballot a standard once it's been developed, and then that would be the voting, the committees would actually vote. And each company has one vote on the standard. And we go through, after that, a very rigorous, they can make comments, and we go through a rigorous comment period. Yeah. So the final product is hopefully something that's been through a rigorous process, and a lot of the comments and a lot of the industry requirements 
and technologies have been vetted and thoroughly um, put in, thoroughly examined to be put in the standard. So the product, and then, you know, technologies change, as I mentioned, and so we revise our standards every five years, or, or if we need to, sooner than that, to bring them to the most up-to-date um, practices. Yeah. What are some of the mechanics of these um, of these committees? Do they meet all over the country? Do they meet regularly? Do they have an agenda, a schedule that they have to kind of meet with respect to moving forward? Well, that's, that's a good question, and it, it, it's better organized than you may imagine. So um, API's standards is um, broken, broken into three committees, uh, uh, upstream, midstream, and downstream. So they all work under a committee structure with the hierarchy. So um, the, the upstream committee, for example, um, has a main committee that oversees then smaller committees that all the standards. So we have over 500 standards at API. So in upstream and in, in midstream where I was, there may be 200. Yeah. So all the standards are broken into subcommittees and governed by subcommittees. And those are made up of the oil company representatives as well as uh, manufacturers. And so it, it really goes further down to work groups, ah. you know, that are a part of this, um, the uh, subcommittees that actually do the drafting of the standards. So there's a very uh, strict approval process to get the changes put in a standard. It goes all the way up to the main committee. Yeah. And um, then the balloting process goes up to the subcommittee level um, where it's voted on. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's pretty rigorous but, involving subject matter experts of all types. Yeah, and, and um, the subject matter experts, you know, they're, they're generally nominated by their companies to represent their companies on the committees. And I did fail to mention that you did ask about um, where we meet. And each of the three segments have two meetings a year where uh, they may work all year in work groups to develop the standard, but they do meet twice a year at one meeting for, say, upstream where they uh, go through kind of the approval process, review the work items, check the status of things. Right. Um, right. So, um, how do uh, how do challenges? How do things um, topics for um, uh, standards rise to the level of being of interest to API or have a committee have a committee uh, focus on it? Or um, are there like standing committees that address all things related to well in upstream all things related to pumps and then all things related to pipe and all things related to drill well that yeah yeah so that, so I, I just relate uh, the experience that I had with the measurement committee so we have two things quality the quality of the product that we're measuring and the quantity so they're kind of broken up like you mentioned, um, meters, for example, that measure the quantity. There's a committee for that. I don't want to go into um, to too much detail on that, but the same with the quality. Uh -huh. um, of, of but the, the general process is the same. You've got subject matter experts. You've got work groups. You've got data information. Yeah, absolutely the same, no matter what the product is. And one thing you asked about, how are new things br right, brought right. up? And, um, and that's interesting you brought that up because in the past five or six years, uh, in my committees, in the measurement 
sect and area, um, we've started what we call emerging issues work groups. So when we meet twice a year, this special, anybody can come to the meeting, but it's a special group and there's not really any standards on it. But it's kind of a free-for-all. People just shoot out ideas um, on, you know, any kind of issues they're having in the field, uh, maybe uh, measuring produced water, things like that. And uh, do we need – so it goes through a process of, you know, maybe that's not that important or maybe it is and needs to be elevated and eventually elevated to a standard. So so that's how new ideas and um, innovation – comes about right. and do, the committees. Do, uh, do the committees ever invite um, sort of specialty sub- subject matter experts who have perhaps some insights um, from the application of a comparable technology in their in, you know outside the oil and gas sector such that those insights lessons learned or whatever might be well, helpful? Yeah, what I would, I mean, when you brought that up, I have to comment on NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Testing. So we do have people from NIST um, on our measurement committees. Uh Of course, NIST does a lot of stuff on measurements. And they do a lot of stuff on the stream, too. So so they have some very strong subject matter experts, and, um, and so they participate just as anyone else in our standard writing, and um, and we rely on them a lot. Sometimes we rely on the NISTs of the world or other um, contractors to do special studies for us, to, and that we need data to write a standard. So, um, right. so yeah, and and uh, we do have uh, government agencies on our committees. Now they're not voting right. members of our committees, but people from say the BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management, which um, writes regulations, part of the Department of Transportation, um, they sit on our committees, and their input is very right. important. So transportation um, will be part of the um, midstream-related committees. Um, yes, that's BLM right. yeah. could be both, but also we know that they're aware of, since they uh, lease onshore federal lands that they would have an interest in uh, upstream yeah thanks for clarifying that to our listeners i appreciate that so and um and then bessie which is the uh offshore upstream uh, regulator yeah Yeah. so so we work closely with the regulators i mean they're still the regulator you know they're not you know um they're gonna definitely say what they need and what they want and but we do try to collaborate together right. with them to come up with the best standard right. for everyone. Right. So that's how the regulator becomes aware of kind of these best practices or these you know, important advancements or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, you also talked about um, custody transfer. Um, for people who are not in the oil and gas sector, um, share with us. I'll take you up to the wellhead, and then you take it from there as a midstream. So um, with respect to oil and gas, you, we um, produce it from the subsurface, comes up to the surface, it goes uh, through pipe to different uh, locations. The gas would go to a, a gas processing um, 
oil would go to a tank, water would be separated. Well, first, first we have separation, oil, water, and gas is separated. Then the oil stream would keep on, keep on going to the uh, end of the lease line, uh, and then it would be transferred to, the custody would be transferred to others uh, who would, I guess, buy it at that point, right? Or, or if the company owns the pipeline. So that's where it gets, I, that's where I get stuck because I'm well, it's a little, No, it's, well, so what, uh, like I said, we have over 200 measurement standards and they kind of cross, and as you said in my introduction, um, upstream, midstream, and downstream. So you're right, when it comes out of the wellhead and goes through a separator, the oil uh, may or may not be sold to another partner off the lease it may can if it's say chevron it may go in a chevron pipeline uh-huh. but if it's sold to another and uh, i don't want to get into commingling but that's where you have several leases involved um, several companies involved but we do have standards for that but so uh, upstream uh, there could be a custody transfer in other words that the oil the crude oil or the gas changes hands from um, the person that br- the company that brought it up to uh, a company that buys it, uh, maybe on the on a platform, or on a um, land lease or something like that from a storage tank. So, um, so that's custody transfer. It's essentially selling the product, oil or gas, you know, from one area to another. So another place of custody transfer could be on a pipeline. So. Um, so a pipeline brings it, say, to a terminal, which is a uh, facility that has storage tanks. And so they may transfer it at that point to, a, uh, to the owner of the terminal, who in turn sells it um, to maybe uh, the gasoline provider uh, for gasoline. It could be gasoline. So the custody transfer, what, what makes it interesting is... Um, and um, you wouldn't think it would be very intricate, but um, our standards, like I said, 200 standards, and um, it's um, because of the cost, especially with high uh, quantities of transfer of product. Um, for those of you that are engineers, we carry our calculations out to the eighth decimal oh place. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because, yeah, if you're transfer, and and uh, we're trying to determine exactly what the quality, you know, what the API gravity or what the, the weight, if you will, of the crude oil is or the, how good it is, in other words, for transfer. So, um, so we carry it out to several decimal places and it could, you know, an error or anything like that could be um, cost a million, would be millions of dollars on a large transfer. So we use a lot of computers. There's a lot of um, sophisticated meters and <clears throat> computer um, on-site computers that um, that go through these calculations to determine, say, what the quality is and what then the quantity, how much is being transferred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, it's very precise and it's uh, maybe not complicated, but the precision really causes you to be attentive to certain factors that you might not that you might not consider. Oh, that's great. Well, we haven't asked you, um, uh, if you if there's anything you would like to share. We're getting to the end of our time, and I want to be sure that you have a chance to share your um, your thoughts or your advice, perhaps, for uh, people considering going into the oil and gas sector. Or, or Well, transfer. that's a very good. Yeah, thank you. And um, 
you mentioned my article for Oil Woman magazine, which they asked me to write after right. I retired. And um, what what that focused on is forty years or so of seeing the changes in the industry and um, and the working with the people and the technologies. And I and and as I mentioned, as an engineer coming out of school. It's very exciting, and, and it still was until I retired. I worked with some of the um, really brightest Ph.D. chemical engineers and scientists. So I would like to, you know, I, I just wish the general public understood that a little more. Well, here's your chance what to explain effort, a little bit about that, so go ahead. Well, what, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that... Um, the engineers and the scientists are, are, you know, the innovation is incredible. Technologies are incredible. They're always innovating. And um, one thing I would like to say um, with regard to ch- climate change, which I hope I can work in a little bit, is well, we're already reducing emissions in the, in you know, through our innovation. And we, de- you know, as I mentioned, our, you know, an example of our technology through the deep water. We, you know, we can innovate and and meet this challenge of climate change. So, um, I I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. and and it's a passionate industry. If you're interested in engineering or science or people, you know, the people of the oil and gas industry are the scientists are, and engineers are just fabulous people to work with. And it's challenging work at times. It's not always easy. But it was a lot of fun, and I look forward to continuing to work. I'm retired now, but, so I live down on the coast of North Carolina, but I, I would hope to continue to um, provide some expertise um, in the future and continue to help the industry. And I do appreciate this opportunity to um, speak. And um, anyway... Anybody has any questions? They can probably contact me through a line. Thank you. Well, we'll put your so. um, contact information or your email into the uh, or your website into the uh, show notes below. And um, people who want to reach out to you, I mean, your wealth of information, you so much experience and uh, so much uh, to share, and such enthusiasm and love for the the industry and the um, the fact that people need energy and. Um, and and uh, the emissions are an important part of moving forward. So wealth of information, deep experience. I mean, API being the standard um, for this area, including uh, the fact that you were part of all of that really adds to the, um, the value that you can bring going forward. So we really appreciate you being with us here today, Sally. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Alina. Thank you. Thank you. I Sally, it. Uh, Sally Goodson, president of Goodson Energy Advisors. We so appreciate you being our guest today and for sharing all your contributions to the oil and gas industry. And we thank everyone for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.